With Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, our online banking and mobile app are like having a branch right at your fingertips with everything you need to use and manage your accounts 24-7. Check us out at NotreDameFCU.com, insured by NCUA. It's time now for our Focus on Faith interview, and it's with one of our most beloved priests for many people that have any association with Notre Dame, Father Paul Doyle, CSC. Father Doyle was team chaplain for the football team from 2001 to 2012. He was the rector at Dillon Hall from 1997 to 2020, now runs the Holy Cross House, an assisted living facility for retired priests who need extra help. Father Doyle grew up a Notre Dame fan in a small town in Virginia. His family used to drive up to the top of the mountains to be able to hear games. He also has incredible perspective. He's spent pretty much the last 60 years on campus. He shares some incredible stories of his life, of Notre Dame football, and of Notre Dame as a whole. Here's Focus on Faith with Father Paul Doyle. You first arrived as an undergrad in 1961, but you had been here before that with uh, some brothers that, that previously were here. Obviously, a lot has changed at Notre Dame in, in the 60-plus years, but Kind of tell me what hasn't changed. What hasn't changed at Notre Dame um, in, in those 60 years? Well, my freshman year, zip codes were invented. We haven't changed the zip code. Uh, most everything else seems to have changed, as has our world. The focal point of the place is still the grotto and the basilica. I hope that never changes. That's uh, seem to recall that every once in a while in the local press they make a story about the grotto notre dame in general being the second most visited place in the state after the brick track in indianapolis and i don't think that's changed the love of sports the importance of football hasn't changed the vicissitudes of the strength of our programs has changed but uh it's still very important here that football put Notre Dame on the map in many ways. So uh, that's important and certainly relevant to this conversation. You know, you grew up in, in Virginia and all your brothers and you ended up here at Notre Dame. How did you guys become such big Notre Dame fans? My dad graduated from Mount St. Mary's College in Emmitsburg, Maryland uh, in 1924 and Newt Rockney was doing well here. Our town in central Virginia, Lynchburg, is 2 or 3% Catholic even to this day. So it was a rallying point for Catholics. And it happened that uh, one parish in my town of 60,000 in those days, uh, my youth, mostly Irish. So uh, I didn't take note of that. That's all the more reason that we would have fallen in line with uh, Notre Dame. My dad determined that his boys would go to school here and all four of us did and loved it. In fact, I have one brother buried here on campus. So that's the background. I remember as a child listening to Notre Dame games on the radio in the late 40s when you could only get a play every now and then because most of it was crackling, the reception was so bad. We'd get in a car and go on out of town um, 10 miles to the Blue Ridge Mountains and get up on top of a mountain, and we could hear better, uh, hear the game better up there. I remember crying when I was 10 years old or so 
Purdue beat us and broke a winning streak that we had going. And uh, I just distinctly remember the disappointment in that game. And so I've been a born and bred. It was, it was fated that I would come to Notre Dame, it seems. And as a priest, I just sort of hung around. After graduating with an econ degree in 65, I worked for six years and served in the Army National Guard rather than go to Vietnam. And after those six years, I came back to Notre Dame and got in the seminary and have been on campus most of the time since. However, I was in parishes downtown on the perimeter of campus for nine years. I think this is year 52 in St. Joe County and uh, 45 on campus. So it's uh, 44, I guess, on campus. So. I've been here a while, and I love the place. My life has been in Catholic education, and and I'm the beneficiary of that myself. I haven't been to anything but Catholic schools. When did you know you wanted to become a priest? I guess I was out of here a year when I figured it out that uh, this is what um, I wanted to do. I, my way of saying it was I thought it would was the thing that would make God most happy if I became a priest. And I was telling that to one of my peers as a young priest. And he said he thought God was already happy and he became a priest uh, because he thought it would make him happy. I thought that was a pretty good answer too. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I guess I was about 23. But again, I'm red, white, and blue. And I had this commitment of six years in the guard. And I Felt like I was growing up a bit after college. Uh, I was far from my home, so I was getting a chance to incorporate the values that I had been taught on my own. And uh, I showed up at 28, so it was a sort of a delayed response more than a delayed vocation, probably. You know, uh, you're listening to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union's Irish Sports Saturdays. I'm Angel DiCarlo. Our guest here on our Focus on Faith interview is Father Paul Doyle, CSC, former Notre Dame football team chaplain, also the longtime rector at Dillon Hall for 23 years from 1997 to 2020. Obviously, as we mentioned, you've, you've been here for so many years uh, and you were such a big fan. So what are some of your favorite memories while you were on campus, whether it was an undergrad or, you know, be, before you became chaplain. We could talk about when, once you became chaplain, but just as a fan, what were some of your favorite memories, uh, you know, growing up uh, as an undergrad and then um, as a priest here at Notre Dame? I would say uh, as a fan, I was in the class with Hewitt and Snow. They graduated in 65 also, and uh, they were my friends. Uh, I remember freshman year, I was in the same dorm as Jack Snow, who was from Long Beach, California, and obviously didn't go home for Thanksgiving. In those days, freshmen couldn't play varsity ball, but uh, someone in the athletic department took him uh, out to their house, a wealthy fella, just for Thanksgiving dinner, and Jack asked if he could bring a friend, so I went along to that home and uh, had a great Thanksgiving dinner. So there was a football friend from freshman year, and there were several because 
of the there were fewer dorms in those days, and every dorm has football players. I remember uh, John Hewitt played very, very little until his senior year when Arab Parsegian got here, and it was uh, so, so gratifying. We had been friends, Hewitt and I, coming through school, but he was not a hero yet, <laughs> and to, so that's a great memory to see my classmate in his senior year go from a relative unknown the players recognized his talent and uh, used to call him Stevie Wonder uh, in his junior year because he would get put in the game when there was 90 seconds to go, and uh, they were hoping he could pull us through. But uh, he showed lots of promise, but Era capitalized on it, and Hewitt had a, a great senior year. Uh, another memory related to that is he hurt his shoulder um, somewhere in the junior year. Maybe it was late in the football season or in the spring training, but the alternatives were to have surgery or not have surgery, sort of like uh, our first-string quarterback this year uh, who had surgery on his shoulder. I don't know that there was the same injury, but uh, local people suggested surgery, and Hewitt went to Chicago and got another opinion, and they said no don't do it, and in that case, he was able to play his senior year. If he had had surgery, he probably wouldn't have been well. So anyway, that's a happy memory. What's that like uh, to see one of your classmates have that type of success? And as you mentioned, when maybe it came out of nowhere, I'm sure you guys had confidence in him, he had confidence in himself, but he had to have the opportunity to, to go from relative unknown, as you mentioned, to becoming a Heisman winner, not just the quarterback at Notre Dame, the Heisman winner. What was that like to experience as a friend? Gosh, it, it was just so exhilarating. He he got the Heisman Trophy a few days before he got his first letter as a varsity athlete at Notre Dame. The football banquet was after the Heisman Trophy banquet. So uh, that was a source of amusement for sure. That it, Here's a guy with a Heisman Trophy who didn't have a letter at Notre Dame, but uh, he, w he was a very humble guy, just a, a great human being as he continues to be. Father Paul, Paul Doyle, former Notre Dame football chaplain, joining us here on Notre Dame Federal Credit Union's Irish Sports Saturdays. Okay, you become chaplain in 2001. You served in that role till through 2012. You know, as someone who grew up a fan, had, had been here so long, what kind of what did that mean to you to have that opportunity to be the, the football team chaplain when once you got it? Like so many other things in my experience here at Notre Dame, priesthood in particular, uh, there have just been awesome surprises. I never expected to be football chaplain. I was rector of a dorm, and uh, even though I'm rabid on the subject, I was um, you know, friends start showing up on Friday morning and they leave Sunday afternoon and I've got a busy life running a dorm and uh, so often I would just skip the game and take a nap or work on a homily for the, the mass that we had in the dorm after the game and students on Sunday. But uh, Kevin White asked the director of campus ministry to ask me to be the chaplain. So I was... Uh, thrilled and humbled and said yes and but I 
said that I didn't want to be the chaplain for away games because I didn't want to be out of the dorm overnight on a weekend. Uh, so I was really the chaplain just for home games and various other priests took the away games. Of course, I went to bowl games when the, no students were around and chaplained those, but it was a great, great experience. I think my favorite memory, Angelo, is uh, of we beat Purdue in the Ty Willingham era on a real hot afternoon in September. I bet the temperature was 85 or more. And the game takes a long time, as you know. Uh, and the at the end of the game, the chaplain's in the locker room first, and he gives a blessing to the athletes as they come in, a single foul or two by two. And the first guy was 20 steps ahead of everybody else. And I said, may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this enormous defensive lineman came to me after that blessing. He just kept proceeding toward me as the locker room was behind me. He said, thank you for the blessing, Father, but what I really need is a hug. And he picked me up <laughs> like I was a feather. And uh, that was probably my favorite mem memory of being a chaplain, just uh, the goodness of the athletes. I have told many people that I would be glad to call any of the athletes I knew in those years a relative because the quality of human being really impressed me. And that's a, a little example of the goodness of these young people. Another memory I have from the sidelines was in those days, the uh, NBC camera went up and down the sidelines on a scissor lift. They didn't have those cameras on wires across the playing field. So uh, behind our bench, uh, there was this mobile scissor lift that drove back and forth up the field and there was a cameraman up on top and then there was a guy on the ground to sort of clear the path make sure we didn't run into they didn't run into anybody as they went back and forth I was headed toward the locker room there was something like a minute and a half on the clock and uh, in those days the team did not stop in front of the student body and sing as they do now but the, after the game, they just ran up to the locker room. So I would typically leave before the game ended, you know, a minute, minute and a half, just to get there before they did so I could offer that blessing to them as they entered the locker room. Well, uh, it was 10 minutes to 5, and uh, the NBC man uh, said, Where are you going, Father? And I explained that I needed to be in the locker room. And... Uh, he said, the game doesn't end until 5. And I said, there are just 75 seconds left, 90 seconds. And he said, the game doesn't end until 5. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was an awakening for me. They, they managed enough timeouts to eat up 10 minutes in for 90 seconds of play. So lots of memories, uh, good people. Uh, a lot of fun. Uh, my dad was rabid, of course, about Notre Dame football, even though he hadn't gone to school here. But uh, he died in 78, and uh, I couldn't help often but think how happy he was watching me there on the sideline from his perch in heaven 
we had gone to Chapel Hill when I was a child to see Notre Dame play there and North Carolina, and we'd gone to Baltimore several times to see us play Navy in Memorial Stadium up there, which we uh, used to do. That was the, basically the home stadium for Navy, Navy in those days, for big games anyway. I saw Joe Bellino and uh, a lot of great Navy players in the 50s before I ever came here. I did come to one uh, game here before I was a student. It was 54. That was my first trip here. We beat Southern Methodist. Uh, but So anyway, I, I've been at this a long time, this Notre Dame stuff. <laughs> Indeed you have. And, you know, I just I was curious, as chaplain, you mentioned giving the blessing after the game. Of all the rituals you got to be a part of, whether it was that or pregame mass, is is one of them, not just one particular story, but is one of those rituals something that stood out to you as maybe the most rewarding for you to, to kind of be a part of with, with the team as a whole? I think the pregame mass was uh, the answer there. And it was usually held in the Lady Chapel, as it is today, uh, of the Basilica. And uh, the whole team was there and the coaching staff, but no one else. And I remember the first day that I had that mass, Father Jim Reilly had been the chaplain for the football team for 30-some years. And uh, he got to the point where with neuropathy and and just the aging process, he was not able to do it anymore. And he, in that first Mass that I had there, he said, I don't want to preach, I don't want to help give out communion, but I want to kind of celebrate, and I want to say something to the team after the Mass. And I said, fine, of course. And so after Mass, this was uh, the first game we played after 9-11, by the way, uh, he said to the team, uh, you know, President Bush has said the best thing we can do as a country is get back to normal as soon as we can and not let the terrorists think that they have destroyed our way of life um, or upended our culture and society. So uh, we need to get back to normal as soon as we can. And it's normal for Notre Dame to win football games, so we owe it to the country to win this game. <laughs> I don't remember any of my homilies from those games, but I certainly remember what Jim Reilly told the team that day. <laughs> That's a fabulous story. Uh, you know, you, you spent 23 years as the rector at Dillon Hall. What was that experience like for you in 23 years as a rector is a very long time. How did you survive that long as the rector at Dillon? Oh, it was a thrill. My classmates would come back and see me sitting there in my room on a Saturday night, students in and out, and they would say, Doyle, how do you get work like this, seeing all these good young people? And uh, I think I'm a much better person for having lived with them. Uh, Manti Teo was one of them, and he's been in the press a bit lately, and it's uh, a memory I have of him, especially in the, he lived, we have Milkshake Mass at uh, Dillon Hall. He's not a Catholic, he didn't go to Mass, but he would drink a couple of milkshakes freshman year uh, every Thursday night after Mass. In fact, he lived across the hall from me, and we would take them to him. He was already in bed, this was 11 o'clock 
at night, and, uh, but he would swill a couple of milkshakes. But then uh, his sophomore year, the coach got a dietitian, and he wouldn't drink any more milkshakes. <laughs> <laughs> they sort of changed his program. But I remember somebody asking Manti after it was found out that he had been uh, taken advantage of, was he going to sue that person? And he said, just showing what a quality human being he is, a great, he was serious about his Mormon faith and still is, but he loves Notre Dame as much as anybody. Anyway, his answer to that question, are you going to sue that fella? He said, it wouldn't make either one of us happier. You know, having gotten to know him and seeing now, I guess the closure he's finally gotten here with, with all the, with the documentary that came out, how gratifying is that to see that he's able to have that and can now live the life um, that he wants to live and everything like that? It's just a, uh, a great example of healing as far as I'm concerned and uh, a beautiful man maturing, uh, a, a fellow who keeps on growing. I guess that's the biggest compliment I can pay somebody is that they keep on growing. And certainly uh, he has done that through all of this and what an ordeal he has had. Final question. Everyone knows about the grotto. Everyone knows about the basilica. You've been around here for 60 plus years. What are the cool spots on campus you like to go to, to, to pray that maybe are not in the public limelight? Maybe you don't want to share them because you don't want people showing up, but <laughs> what are some of those special spots for you? Well, I would start with the uh, uh, log chapel and would that it were open for people to go in any time. It's, uh, there are I don't think there are any regularly scheduled masses there, but there are a lot of masses there, baptisms, renewal of vows, that sort of thing. And uh, I would take dorm students over there just so they would get a chance to see it and have a daily mass over there in the evening. But that would be a favorite place if we, uh, you, you, know, you know, in addition to the grotto, I, I would say the grotto is where I would start and the basilica is very beautiful, of course, but the log chapel is a big deal for me, too, and I'm in there with some regularity for these ad hoc events. You know, there must be 60 chapels or so. I've heard the number. It might be a little more than that on campus, and each of them has its special appeal, too. I guess the Dillon Chapel, where I was for 23 years, would be uh, especially attractive to me and it, that building was built with football money in 1931 as was Alumni Hall and the original of the law school, the initial part of what's now standing as the law school. All football money from the Rockney era, the Dillon and Alumni Halls were built in 31, Rockney died in 31 in March and there's still a, a mass prayed there annually in the last Sunday of March, followed by a communion breakfast. Uh, this this past year, I think the Mass was actually where the breakfast was in the stadium on the east side, but more recently, uh, I mean, just prior to that, it had been in Dillon for a few decades. Anyhow, it used to be in the South Dining Hall, it used to be in the Basilica, but 
the people who knew Rockney are fading away. Some of his family still comes, thank God. But uh, in that chapel, since he died in March and the hall didn't open until October of 31, they added a side altar dedicated to St. Olaf, the patron saint of Norway. And that's where Newt is from, Norway. So uh, the statue, there's a little plaque there, the side altar that has Olaf standing on it. Uh, a little plaque there said this was donated by the Notre Dame student body, uh, the Rockney family, and uh, the Knights of Columbus chapter here on campus. So uh, a lot of people call that chapel St. Olaf Chapel, but in fact it's St. Patrick's Chapel, and St. Patrick and St. Bridget are in the stained glass windows on either side of the tabernacle, and Father Dillon, who was uh, president here shortly after Soren, his first name was Patrick, hence the St. Patrick's Chapel. Father Doyle, thank you so much for, for taking the time to be with us and sharing your memories here uh, uh, at Notre Dame. It's a treat and a surprise, Angelo. I, I guess you scratch me and I can talk about this place quite a bit. I didn't know what we were going to so say, but your question certainly triggered some uh, neat thoughts in my head. It's a treat. Thank you. Father Paul Doyle, CSC. Uh, I, I, John, we're listening to it. There are so many points where we're like, that's a great story. That's a great story. And, of course, we're also reacting about the accent, uh, a boat, and uh, <laughs> the different things that he was saying in particular. Uh, that was great. What a great man. Yeah, that was an awesome interview. That was my first time hearing it, and it was just wonderful. And uh, he gives some great perspective. All that He starts it off with all that change. And still the Constance, the Basilica, the Grotto, and the football team. And just a, a great perspective on the university. I know he's just touched a, a million people that have come through that place. I know he baptized my brother. Um, I wasn't there. He's older than me, so I wasn't there. But <laughs> I know he baptized my brother. And one of the stories my parents would tell me is he always, he when he baptized my brother, he would let all of our cousins and, and the kids there help baptize the brother. So uh. just one of those things about him where he makes everyone feel included. And that's why he just... He has so many stories about so many great people that have come through because he touches everyone. Isn't it amazing when we get to see God work in powerful ways? Multiple times recently, God has pulled me out of my comfortable Catholic bubble into the path of people with vastly different experiences. Through these encounters, I've learned that God is showing me how to accompany and evangelize his sons and daughters who are disengaged from the church. At Redeemer Radio and Spoke Street Media, God is doing the same. He is moving and calling us to incredible things in our ministry. Every investment you make helps us re-engage fallen away Catholics and reach seekers by researching needs in order to hone in on programming that speaks Christ into those needs. Your contributions also allow us to reach more people where they are consuming media every day. Here at Spoke Street Media, we create faithful Catholic content that affirms all listeners' dignity and points to Jesus who alone can satisfy the longings of every heart. God is always sending us a message of love. Together we can help more people hear it.